So when I, when I read the Bible, I look for the weird things, and I let them be weird. Just like you let me be weird. <laughs> Judges 13 again. All right. You read last time, so I'm going to read this time, and then we're going to continue discussing Judges 13. Okay, this time we're going to uh, emphasize some of the things that I drew out of the passage and talk about those. Yep, awesome. Okay, Judges 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah and of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man whom spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the manner, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angels of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I have of all that I said to the woman, let her be very careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up into heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. How did you pronounce it? Mahanadan. Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Eshtaol. Yeah. Eshtaol. <laughs> so thank you for reading. I 
there's a few things that really stand out to me in this passage. Mm-hmm. What I do when I when I read a passage in the Bible, I guess the first thing that I do, and I, I learned this from George Mueller in a biography that I read about him, he would always ask the Holy Spirit to just give him understanding as he reads. Because the Bible is God-breathed, right? It's mm-hmm. breathed by God's Spirit. And so if we're going to understand it, it's going to take spiritual discernment. That was his argument. He said that when he started doing this, he didn't really reference commentaries anymore. Just because he was, he understood it not just with his mind, but with his heart too. So that's what I do. And then, sure enough, as I read, certain things begin to stand out, and it's usually the weird things that mm-hmm. stand out. And so when I when I read the Bible, I look for the weird things, and I let them be weird, just like you let me be weird. <laughs> and the first note that I have in Judges thirteen comes in verse five, where the angel of the Lord is speaking to Manoah's wife and talking about Samson. He says, No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. Remember, Nazarite comes from Hebrew, Nazir, meaning set apart. And he will begin the deliverance of of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Okay, so what I hit on here is the the phrase, he will begin the deliverance of evil, Israel. Not that he will complete it, but that he will begin it. And I just think it's interesting how the Philistines were known for being located on the western coast of Israel, right next to the Mediterranean Sea. Where Gaza is. Where Gaza is. And it's just interesting to me that there is still conflict going on between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And I don't know if Hamas descends from the Philistines, but I do think it's interesting that it doesn't say that Samson will completely deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. It just says he will begin the deliverance of Israel. The second thing that I notice is that the woman describes this being that comes to her, verse 6, as a man of God. And she says, he looks like an angel of God, very awesome. So she doesn't precisely or exactly notice that he's an angel. She calls him a man of God. Verse 8, Manoah says the same thing. Oh Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. And that just, I find interesting that they didn't immediately recognize it as an angel because we have a tendency to think that angels are bright white beings in robes and that we'd be able to recognize them as angels. Yeah. So is this an angel or is this a man or is this an angel appearing like a man? I don't know. And then sort of change the topic. Verse 12, Manoah is speaking to the angel of the Lord and he says, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work. Remember remember the question. What is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? And then what's the angel's response? Verse 13. Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine. Nor drink any wine or other fermented drink. Mm. Or eat anything unclean. She must do everything I've commanded her. That doesn't seem like an answer to Manoah's question. Manoah asked about the boy. The angel talks about the wife. And it's weird because the boy's the one who's going to be a Nazarite. Yeah. And the Nazarite vow, remember, you're not allowed to eat anything from the grapevine or drink any fermented drink or cut your hair. And yet the angel of the Lord commands the wife not to dr- eat anything. Or do anything unclean. Right. Or eat anything unclean. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Unclean. But Manoah seems to take it in stride. He doesn't reply and say, but I asked about the boy. Manoah seems to go right along with this. He seems to understand. My question is, what does he see that we don't see? My theory here, and I have actually... I don't have any substance to this theory. <laughs> hey, say, what's up? <laughs> is that Manoah's wife failed. I think she didn't meet meet the demands of the vow. And I think that's why we see 
and Samson, hmm. the tendency to not meet the demands of the vow. I don't know, but that's just my theory. Interesting. Yeah, I want you to keep talking about that because that's interesting. It's also interesting that she's not named. I find that really interesting because all of the other stories about barren woman who bears a child. Yeah. Every single other she's not is named. named. Yeah. Sarah, Hannah, Elizabeth. Not her though. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I don't either. Um, but speaking of names, verse 17, it says, Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. And this, to me, was so similar to a passage that we find Genesis. in Genesis 30? 33. Sorry, Genesis 32. And this passage... Jacob had run from his brother Esau, who would wanted to kill him, and he knows that in the near future he's going to have to meet with his brother Esau, and he doesn't know whether there's going to be reconciliation or not. So he sends his wives ahead of him, and he sends his kids ahead of him, and he stays behind. And it says, Genesis 32, 22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, the two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Yabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man answered him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Israel means, and I'm reading from a footnote here, Israel means he struggles with God. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed them there. Verse 30, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Okay, so that's what I want to hit on. This question, what is your name? That we find in Judges 13, 18. Sorry, 13, 17 through 18. Looks so similar to what we find in Genesis 32. Same story with Jacob. Okay, now put a pin in that and let's go forward just a little bit. In verse 20, it talks about how Manoah offered the burnt offering uh, and it says, as the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. And then verse 22, Manoah says, we are doomed to die. He says to his wife, we have seen God. And I want to hit on their reaction here. They fell with their faces to the ground. And I, <laughs> I want to jump actually to Joshua 5. And it's going to seem like we're jumping all over the yeah, place here. Like but Joshua 5. Verse 13, I, th I think this section in the Bible is one of the, like the most awesome, in the true sense of the word, awesome sections of the Bible. It says, now when Joshua was, Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down the ground in reverence and asked of him what message does my lord have for his servant the commander of the lord's army replied take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy 
and Joshua did so. Okay, so we see a nameless man again in Joshua 5, similar to Genesis 32, a nameless man. This time, similar to Judges 13, where Manoah and his wife fall face down, Joshua falls face down in front of this man. And now if you read into the Bible and you get through to Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, you're going to find in Revelation 22, the Apostle John receives a word from an angel. It's not the angel of the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a created angel. And John says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. But the, but the angel said to him, do not do that. So the angel rebukes John for worshiping and falling at the feet of the angel. Now here in Judges 13 and Joshua, Joshua 5, and then at very other, various other places in the Bible, we don't see, see where this is going. Okay. We don't see them being rebuked for falling with their faces to the ground, almost like it's the proper response. Yeah. Fall with your face to the ground. Which means what? Which means they're in the presence of God. That's what I would say. That's, it means they're in the presence of God. Because they're not rebuked. And if they were rebuked, then we would know it is not God. But right. the proper response. The proper response when you see God for who he is, is to fall face down in worship. That's what you see when the disciples uh, are up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Jesus transfigured and it says they were terrified and they fell face down. Or when the glory of the Lord filled the temple or the tabernacle, right? After Solomon had built the, the temple or, or the Israelites had built the first tabernacle, the glory fills it. And what do the people do? They fall on their face because the Lord has now come to dwell in this place. But not only that, I want to hit on verse 22. I talked about this earlier. Manoah says, after all this happened, we are doomed to die. He said to his wife, we have seen God. Okay. And flip once again with me to Judges chapter six, where we have a very similar situation in the story of Gideon. Gideon receives a word from the Lord. Actually, he receives a word from the angel of the Lord, the same angel that we find in Judges 13 saying that Gideon's going to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord, I'm reading from 6.12, appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then verse 17, I'm going to skip down a little bit. It says, Gideon replied, If I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me, you being God. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait till you return. Verse 19, Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, similar to Manoah, and from an ephah of flour he made a bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the, tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Okay, that's, that's a key phrase, face to face. We saw in Genesis 33, what did Jacob name the place? Genesis, Genesis sorry, 32, 30. It says, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life is spared. Yeah. Judges 6, we have Gideon saying, Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then verse 23, 
But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon seems, seems to have the same fear that Manoah has in Judges 13 saying, we are doomed to die. We have seen God. And my question, Will, is do you know why they have this fear? Like, why do people freak out when they see God and say, we're doomed to die? Uh, my guess is that, I mean, when you see God, you're, you realize just, you're like comparing yourself to the holiness of God. You realize how broken you are and you compare yourself and say, oh my gosh, this is not only perfection, but also the judge. And you think, there's no way I can stand this judgment. I'm going to die. Okay. That's my initial thought. You may have some another idea. I think you hit on an important point. I think we also find in Exodus 33 in the Bible itself, the reason that these people believed that they would die when they saw God face to face. Exodus 33, 18, this famous passage, it says, Then Moses said to God, Now show me your glory. Verse 19, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I, ha I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, and this is key right here, he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And so that's why these people freak out. It's because they know their, they know their Bible. Yeah. They know that God himself says, No one can see my face and live. And so, Will, I have a question for you, is how is it, that in Genesis 32, Jacob sees or claims to have seen the face of God. I've seen God face to face. Well, and, and that yet he lives. And then, sorry, also Judges 6, Gideon says, or Gideon freaks out, and but God says, you're not going to die. And then Judges 13, Manoah and his wife do not see, do not die, though they have seen God, right? Why is it that they see God face to face and yet they don't die? I'm not going to answer that question. I want to propose a better question. Not a better question, but a different question. Got it. Why is it that if you see the face of God, you die? So this is going to hit on the idea of holiness. Okay. So the word holy means set apart. And I actually want to sorry, look at the etymology of the word because the idea itself is so strange. Like when's the last time you actually sat down and thought about like, what do we mean when we say that God is holy? Like that's such a common word that we say. And that's what the angels proclaim like in Isaiah 6 which is another one of these like famous passages where someone sort of freaks out because they saw saw God let me read it real quick so it says Isaiah 6 1 in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple above him were seraphs each had six wings with two wings they covered their face and with two wings they covered their feet and with two they were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The, earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And like, so the angels are describing God as, using three words, holy, holy, holy. They're just saying this over and over again. And that's like what they say in the presence of this, of this being, right? 
The word holy, I looked up, means dedicated or consecrated to God. Sacred, set apart, devoted to the service of God. Why is this the only thing that the angels can say when they get in God's presence? I don't know if that question's right when you say it, if that's the only thing they can't say. Why is this the thing that they repeat? Why is this the thing that they say? Yeah. That's what they were made to do. They were programmed to say holy? Maybe. So what does it mean that God is holy? Like, and what does it mean that he says, be holy as I am holy? To us like what does holiness mean now that's a, does it mean separate yourself and live in this isolated community right and and be weird is that what holiness is is it weirdness or what is it that that sets god apart well let me right? ask you this is it perfection is it our idea of aristotelian perfection like moral perfection without any flaw the perfect transcendent idea of a thing. No, I don't think it's perfection. Okay, so uh, that's that's. If you don't think that it's perfection, that rules out the idea of having to live in isolation because okay. Jesus didn't live in isolation. Okay, he was friends with tax collectors and sinners. Yo, he was still holy. Now going back to your idea, you never even you never touched my question of. Why is it that no one may see the face of God and live? Is it I just think because, it's because God said so? No, I think it's because God is holy and by nature we are not. Like what is the thing that Isaiah says in Isaiah 6 when he sees God's face? Or when he says, I've seen the king. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, and it's this idea okay, of like, like say you have a light, right? And say there's like a, a, a dead moth inside the light bulb. When the light is on, you're going to see the silhouette. When, where in Isaiah are you? Because Isaiah chapter 6. Okay. Because, so Isaiah says he's of unclean lips. So then what happens? For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The word atone means to make amends for. Okay, so how does putting a hot coal to your lips atone for sin? I don't know. Okay. it's. A, I mean, that's a, it's a weird passage in and of itself. It's like whenever you see the light, whenever the light's turned on, you see what's really there. Like in the darkness, things can hide and like in the darkness, things can get messy and things can get dirty. But when the light is on, you see how dirty things are. Like say it's like a dirty closet and there's like moldy food in there and this mold is spreading throughout the closet, right? And the closet is off, the light is off in the closet and you're going to close the door on the closet and then come back six months later and you turn the light on and you see just how much this mold is spread. And what do you do? You freak out and you say, ew, that's gross. <laughs> you freak out. Ew, that's gross. Yeah, I mean, but that's what we do as humans is we don't like, like uncleanness. Something about it is repulsive to us. And I would say that's because like we weren't made to be unclean and we weren't made to live in dirtiness. And like sin itself, like I don't know if you can call sin moral uncleanness. Just as we physically react to dirty things, we should react like spiritually to spiritually dirty things, 
right? And that's why Isaiah says when he sees this moral per- perfection and this perfect light, this perfect spiritual being who maybe he saw with his eyes was physically light, but he also saw with the eyes of his heart was spiritual light emanating, right? holiness, right? Set apart, not like him. And when he sees himself in light of this, he sees his own uncleanness because he sees, man, I'm not what this being created me to be. And I think that's the human problem is we are not who we were created to be, right? And like we see the same reaction in Luke chapter five with Peter. And this is something that happens like before Jesus calls Peter to follow him. And I think it's so crucial in, in, in Peter's life and in other stories that we find about Peter in the Gospels. But Luke chapter 5, uh, it says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. Simon, remember, his Simon is also called Peter. And he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. When they came, they filled the boat so full that they began to sink. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. It's so interesting, Peter's reaction. Like, he doesn't freak out and say, Man, look at all these fish. We're going to be rich now. Like, we're going to eat for days. Like, let's make fish jerky, man. Let's dry this stuff out so we can carry it with us. He, no, he... He falls at Jesus' feet. He fell at Jesus' knees. And said, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. What did he see in Jesus that caused him to do, to do this? And I heard this from a man named Shane, Shane Bernard. He's the lead singer of a band called Shane and Shane. And he said that at this moment, what Peter sees in Jesus, he says, he, Peter knows Messiahs, right? Peter knows that the, the Messiah is God's anointed and he's supposed to be king. He doesn't. Or he might not know that he's supposed to be the son of God. And so what does Peter see? He sees a man that either told the fish where to go into the net or he made fish in the net. And Peter realizes that he's, he's, he's at the feet or he's at the, he's at the command of someone who has the power to do this. Someone who has the power to say to the fish, go from here to here. And they do just like you find Jesus at other points commanding the wind and the waves to be still. And they are. Like they obey him. The inanimate things, the things that don't think, they don't have being, they obey him because he has that power. And Peter looks at himself and says like, but I don't, I don't obey you. Like I don't do what God says. I am a sinner. And he sees himself in the light of God's holiness and the light of God's light, 
right? His, his true spiritual essence as light. Remember, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And his only reaction is to fall at Jesus's feet and say, like, I'm unclean. And my question for us is like, like how, like in, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about how in the face of Jesus Christ, we behold the glory of God. And I, I want to pull this up just real quick. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. Okay. Can I interject? Yeah, go ahead. So while you've been talking, I've also been thinking about this idea of how uh, touching a burning coal to your lips makes you clean. Okay. And I think Isaiah is working in symbols here. Well, no, duh, he's working in symbols here. A burning coal. What is it? What is it? What is it? Symbolize. What is it? Oh, well, it's it's on fire. Yes, it's on fire. It's really hot. Burn. It's on fire. Okay. Mouth. What is a mouth? Well, Isaiah said he had unclean lips. He has un- lips. What is a lips? It's it is where words come which through. Which words come through. Okay. So, in essence, words are then passing through the fire out into the world. Okay. And so the fire that is touching his lips is burning up the uncleanliness of his words. Okay. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 14 and 15. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Okay. That same imagery. Yeah. And so I think that's why seeing the face of God, no one can survive after seeing the face of God. No one can see the face of God and live. Why? Because when you see the face of God, it is in essence a fire that burns up everything that is unclean okay and so, and so you in essence, yourself are unclean it will a burn part you of you the part of you that is unclean that is sinful will be burned up and if there is not that foundation of christ that can't survive the flames of darkness. also what does it, it say that what do they what does he what do you see when you look at like it says uh in revelation what is how does john describe jesus in revelation i think like seven maybe i don't know uh revelation one he says he has eyes like burning fire, or eyes ablaze. His eyes were like the flames of fire. Eyes are that fire. So we, we've talked about how you cannot see the face of God and live. But why is it that we can see the face of God, right? Second Corinthians 4, 8, which I just read. Why, why is it that we can see the glory of God and Jesus Christ in, the, in his face and yet live? Like Moses in Exodus 33 we read this earlier, said, God said to him, you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. After Moses had said, I want to see your glory. But God says to him, you can see my backside, but you can't see my face, right? And in 2 Corinthians, something has happened throughout the course of history through which we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and live. And and not, not only that, but 2 Corinthians is also going to talk about how we... And beholding Jesus' face and and, and seeing his face with unveiled faces are being transformed from one degree of glory 
to another, right? And that's the idea uh, that I read about. And, I, and Tim Keller, he writes a book on prayer. Um, and I read about this in this book on prayer. It, it, he talks about how what you behold with your mind's eye or with the eyes of your heart or what you think about rules your life and transforms you into its image. Right? So if you behold money in your mind's eye, and if you prize that as, as your greatest worth, you're going to be transformed into a man that seeks money with everything he has. He's going to spend his time working to make as much money as possible. If you behold physical perfection in your mind's eye and, and behold that as, as your greatest sense of worth, you're going to spend a lot of your time in the gym. You're going to, you're going to read about being physically fit and what that takes. And you're going to be transformed into a meathead. <laughs> Sorry, a lot about what they look like. So that the what you see with your heart is what you ultimately become. Which is why Paul's able to say in 2 Corinthians, we behold Jesus with unveiled faces. And so we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And I think this is the same thing that Jesus talks about in John chapter 16, where he says, if you abide with you, me, if you remain with me, you will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. When we see him and when our hearts behold him, we're transformed by the power of God. And God bears fruit in our lives because it's him bearing the fruit and it's not us doing it. And so for someone who struggles with like, what does it look like to really obey God? Because I've wrestled with this. What does it look like to obey God? What does it look like to have living faith that James talks about in the book of James? faith that has works with it. I think the way you get there is by beholding Jesus and by prizing him. But then like the question that I run into is like, man, how do you desire him as as like your greatest worth and the greatest beauty and the greatest treasure out there? Like how do you, how does he become that in your life? Do you have an answer to that? Like do you have a thought? That's totally not something people have been arguing about for thousands of years. Just kidding. It actually is. It seems that God calls people. It also seems that we choose God. We just choose. It seems that on a more less abstract level, more fundamental level, it seems that if we start acting like we do that, then we may start to do that. But that doesn't seem to work all the time. It seems that where we store up our treasure, there is where our heart will be also. But in essence, oh, you don't know. Like, there's a lot of possibilities. How do you know which one? Huh, John? Well, how do you do it? How do I do it? Yeah. How do I do it? You know, if you do everything, chances are one of them more. So how do you no. want how do you want Jesus more than you want anything else? Like how does that become the pursuit of your life? Like David says, Psalm twenty seven, one thing, right? One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I might seek his face, right? And that's the idea. Again, seek his face, which we've been talking about throughout this podcast. How do you want that? How do you want that more than anything else? And how does that become your one thing? I think in a Western world, we would say that following complete understanding, then we will suddenly, our eyes will be open and we will suddenly, that is what we will desire. So complete understanding, like with your mind? Come with your mind. Like when like I... Like when you understand something you with understand, your mind. understand, like I get it now. Suddenly, it's all good. No, I see. I think I think you need to want it with your heart. I think you need to want it with not just your mind and not just understanding with your mind. I'm not done. Okay, I agree too. I think in another essence, maybe practicing you you wanting something. What? 
How do you practice, practice wanting something? How do you practice wanting something? Yeah. John, have you seen the 30 for 30 about Coach V? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what they did one time every season? They cut the nets down. They cut the nets down. Yeah. They practiced wanting to win. No, no. They practiced winning. They no, practiced no. the victory. They right? practiced. The, it wasn't practicing. Oh, hey, no. This is what we'll do. We got to make sure the scissors are right here. Uh, you know, we don't want anyone to get cut. We, they're not practicing the cutting down the nets. They're not even practicing basketball. Because what they do is they like barely, like, you know, right after practice, then they'll do it. Right. They're practicing? No, they said they scheduled a whole practice where they didn't do anything but take a ladder, climb up, climb up the ladder as if it was at the end of the game of the championship game and cut down the nets, which is they what every are single practicing what it'll be like at the end of the game. They are practicing what it looks like after you win. Okay, keep going. Okay. So, what does it look like practicing heaven? I don't know. Well, what does God say? What, what, what is say? what is heaven like? No more tears. No more tears. No more pain. No more pain. Perfect community with, with God, you know? Right. Okay. So practicing wanting heaven is, is in essence caring for other people, practicing no more tears, practicing serving others to make what we have now more like the kingdom of God, like more like heaven. Okay. I want to... I'm... I'm going to go in a different direction, though I do think you're onto something. I do think that when you taste like just the goodness of the world around you, you begin to want that more and more. Yes, that's what I'm saying, but I'm emphasizing like a different a different point. Why I keep saying like serving other people is that this doesn't exist in a vacuum. The gospel doesn't exist. Maybe it would exist in like a vacuum with, with no with right. no people but but it doesn't but what is the gospel like what because you keep saying like it's it's about serving others right the, the story so, of jesus life death burial resurrection how he came to fulfill the law perfectly okay and so why did he do that why did he do that yeah like what is the point of the gospel i think is to show us how it's done and show us also, like, what, what does Paul say? He says, for if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't know how much of a sinner I am. Right, if, if it, the law didn't say, thou shalt not covet. Yeah, I, I would wouldn't know. Show us what it's like, but also give us hope that he's done it already. Okay. Show us what it's like to do it. Okay, and here, here's what I think. This is something I really, really struggle with. I think he came, yes, to show us what it's like. To serve others. Remember he says in the book of John, after washing the disciples' feet, as I have done to you, now you do to yeah. each other. Right? And he says, love each other as I have loved you. Right? Mm -hmm. Greater love has no one than this. No one has greater love than this, that he lays down his life for one another. But why did he do it? And here's here's what I think. Because you, when it comes to loving others and serving others, you have to be full on the inside before you can feed others. And this is, this is like, where are you going to get the energy to love others? Like, and here's, here's how I understand this. If I'm having a bad day and if my mood is bad and if I'm not feeling loved and, my, and if I'm feeling devalued and unappreciated, what are the odds that I'm going to go love others? Not having a feeling of self-pity and doing it for the sake of the other person. I'm not going to be able to do it because I'm running low on the energy to love others. Okay. When you realize you are perfectly loved, and when your quote-unquote love tank is full to overflowing, 
with love, when you realize just how deeply you are loved, then you're able to extend love to other people, right? And so what does Jesus do in the cross? Jesus comes to earth and says, I value you, and this is the extent to which I value you. I'm going to go to the depths to show you my love by dying for you. And I'm going to take this punishment, like this, the crucifixion, right? And the crucifixion wasn't even the, like the, the bad part of the cross, like the cross itself, the, what the cross represents, Jesus' separation from God is what was horrible. And the crucifixion is a physical manifestation of what was going on spiritually with him, right? So what did he take? He didn't just die a painful death, but he did it in someone's stead. Like no one said, go to the cross. No one forced God to go to the cross. God would have been perfectly righteous and just to leave us in our sinful state where we are. No one said you have to do this. And so when Jesus says, I lay my life freely down, he does it of his own volition. And why does he do it? Like, why does God do that for us if he would be perfectly just to not do it? And it's because he's rich in love and he's rich in mercy. And, And it's because he loves us that deeply. And it's because... He is God, right? And, and and this is what Psalm the the psalmist says in in Psalm sixty three. He says, "Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you." I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And this is a man who says, I want God. My one thing in life is to want God. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. And when I have you, my soul is satisfied as with the richest of foods. Your love is better than life. Yes. And so he's tasted and he's seen yeah. that God is good, that he is full of grace, right? And that in Jesus we have the fullness of God, right? And in Jesus we have God's word to us, which is. I love you. And so part of that understanding, like you you said, we can't serve others. Like your love tank is empty. You can't love other people. Right. You can't love other people for the loving them. You can do it out of some sort of selfish. You okay. can do something that yeah. looks like love. Right. And I think that is like a good framing part of a picture of what salvation looks like. It's understanding that God loves you so much that he would die for you. And when you... When you trust that, that is belief in that, that that Christ actually loves you enough to, to die for you. And he did do that. When you believe that, when you trust that, your love tank is full. You realize that you're loved. Right. And then out of that love flows into other people. Mm-hmm. It is like the natural process. That is like, in a sense, kind of what, sal- what salvation looks like. Right. Which is why Jesus says in John 16, I'm the vine, you are the, van- the branches. 
If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Unless your love tank is full to overflowing, you will not bear the fruit of loving others for their sake and with the true love that comes from God. Right? You will not be able to, which is why we need him. Because we need to be loved before we can fulfill God's will and our purpose of loving others. I was going, I was, when you were starting out that, that last, I don't know, monologue almost? Yeah. I don't know. You were saying that in order to love other people, your love tank has to be overflowing. Yeah. And I was misinterpreting what you were saying at the beginning. And maybe other people were misinterpreting it. That's why I'm bringing it up. And saying that, oh, I must always feel like I'm extremely loved in order to, to love other people. Okay. And I don't think it's a feeling. Okay. It's not a feeling. It is a firm held trust. It okay. Is like a, it is like a, it is like almost a foundation you stand on. It is saying, all right, I don't feel this way, but I know this to be true. Okay. Yeah. So it's the Hebrew word for knowing intimately is yada, right? It's this idea of yes. knowing like intimately with, with like, not just your mind, not just knowing about, but knowing from, I guess, experience and and spiritually knowing something from within, when you yada God's love for you, right? You're able to do this. Yeah. Even in Exodus, uh, I just wanted to read this to kind of keep going. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, as he, the Lord, passed in front of Moses, uh, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Verse 7, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We, we look at the third and fourth generation and we say, what? How could God punish? But it also says that, that God shows love to thousands of generations to those who, who love him. Uh, the thousand to three ratio. And so, like I was saying before, this love that god has shown us doesn't end up with us it's not in a vacuum we show love to others you know we love because he first loved us we can show love to others and what does that look like i think it means going back to like last podcast thinking of less of your own name thinking about the name of god c.s lewis says something really interesting showing hospitality about humility he says humble people aren't people who who simply think less of themselves they just think of themselves less. Yeah. So it's it's seeing other people. Yeah. Not and I, seeing yourself Loving less. your neighbor, in a sense, is a humble thing. Because you're putting, like, their needs above your own. And and maybe not necessarily, like, all of their wants, but all of their needs. And what is... And that's, that's a hard thing to discern. I mean, if they want what you, is ultimately bad for them, you won't want to to help them do that, like help them fulfill that. And so we need this sort of wisdom. And that's why you have to be in the word of God to know, to know the word, to know how to discern anything. We talked about seeing God face to face. And I just really like this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. 
When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And I just think there's just richness to those words. Then we shall see face to face. That one day we will, like Job says in Job 19, say, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I just think it's interesting, like, there's day coming where you will behold your Redeemer with your own eyes and where you'll live in a world with no more, no more pain and no more tears and where everything will be made new and we'll worship Him in perfection um, and we'll know His love fully and we'll never question it again. And that's our hope. That's what our lives are building to. But with that, I don't have anything else. All right.